I was told I could preach on anything this morning, um, and uh, I didn't have to. I didn't have to think too long. Like choosing a topic wasn't that difficult, because if you want to know what I'm passionate about, if you want to know what really like lights a fire in my bones, it's Jesus. Um, a few years ago, I spent about a year studying uh, theology at Oxford in the UK, and people like to ask me, you know, Jordan, when you were in Oxford, like, what was the biggest takeaway from, from your year there? And you might think it was, you know, the, the evidences and the reasons for God's existence, and I can say now more than ever that Christianity is truly intellectually compelling. But I like to say beyond the reasons, the, my biggest takeaway was actually what I want to call the eminent presence of God, that God is alive and moving and working in this world today by his spirit to bring about what we call the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And while we might not see much of this here in the West, I want to say that there are glimpses of it all around us. We see it sometimes in a measure when someone confesses and repents of the sin that enslaves them, or in a demonic deliverance, or maybe in a healing, or a prophetic insight. All these things, they point beyond themselves to the active work of a living God in our world and in our lives. And these are works, we say, of the self-effacing spirit, the spirit of God that always points beyond itself and back to Jesus. And now I grew up in a Christian environment, but for the longest time I wasn't seeing this, you know, this inbreaking, this so-called kingdom of God, this eminent presence. What was I missing? What was I missing? And I could answer this in a variety of ways, but I think the easiest way to answer this is to give you the Sunday school answer, and that's to say, Jesus. That if I wanted to understand the work of the Spirit to bring about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, I had to look to where the Spirit points, Jesus. And seeing him afresh began to stir a fire in my bones. And one of the catalysts of this was actually a series of lectures on the parables and the miracles of Jesus in their first century context in Oxford. And so when you hear about the parables and the miracles, when I talk about them, maybe we're going to do a series on that. We don't, I guess I don't know yet, but um, I guess you're, you're hearing, just know you're hearing like echoes of my professor, Michael Ramsden, and his late mentor, uh, Kenneth Bailey. But what did studying the miracles and the parables of Jesus do? <sighs> Listen, it's that they helped me recapture the wonder, that they helped me see Jesus for who he really was, in his power and in his pain, and in his humanity and in his divinity, that the Jesus who walked and talked and ate with religious leaders and sinners who had friends on the left and friends on the right, who had friends who were rich and friends who were poor, and that when we see Jesus in context, I want to say that he becomes terribly, awesomely relevant to our contemporary lives. And one of the parables that helped me see Jesus and his kingdom, this inbreaking more clearly, was the parable of the great banquet. But before we dive in, I need to, to lay a few foundations. Can you move me forward, Paul? Or maybe the batteries are out. No? Aha! We do not have the connecting piece. So I'm going to lay a few uh, foundation kind of definitions to help introduce us uh, where we're going so we don't get lost. And the first is that you'll notice that when I talk about Jesus, that I've referred to him both as divine and human. But what's that all about? 
In short, the Bible reveals that Jesus is says that the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. That both the Father and the Son are of the same glorious divine nature. But the Son is the radiant imprint who took on human flesh. And so Jesus, then we say, has two natures, one fully human and one fully divine. And that these two natures united in the one person, the God-man, Jesus. So that Jesus doesn't have two persons, he is one person, but a God-man duality. And so you hear this, and you're like, what? What? <laughs> but remember, God doesn't defy our logic. He transcends it. Things can transcend our reason while still being reasonable. For example, think of the ongoing conundrum in modern physics. Is light a wave or a particle? Physicists say both. At the same time, how is this possible? It, it's a quantum mystery. <laughs> and so how can this be? If, if physics can transcend our reason, why not theology? Perhaps in the same way wave-particle duality transcends our reason, yet remaining reasonable. So God-man duality transcends our reason and is yet reasonable. After all, he does reveal himself to be the light of the world doesn't he? So God doesn't defy our logic, he transcends it. And so Jesus is the God-man who has entered into this world and he's teaching in parables. But what is a parable? And I think we get this idea that like parables are these stories to illustrate morals to simple people. But I want to say that the parables of Jesus are actually quite profound. They're quite complex. They're not just illustrations of his teaching, they are the meat of his teachings. Jesus is uh, parables are not just illustrations of some theology, they actually are his theology. And so then knowing this, our task as listeners, as an audience, is to sit down and to listen as Jesus tells his parable, to join into that audience. And our parable today is on the parable of the great banquet in the kingdom of God. And so my final definition is, what is the kingdom of God? Now this is a bit of a tricky one, but the theologian M.T. Wright helped me see that for the Jews of Jesus' time, the expression kingdom of God or its equivalent, kingdom of heaven, had a very practical meaning. It was not a place you go after you die, somewhere out there, but rather it was a Jewish way of talking about the implications of what happened when Israel's God became king. That when God becomes king, our whole world of space and time will be put aright. That the perfect king would bring perfect peace and perfect justice. A way I find helpful to think about this would be two dimensions, that in one dimension is like it's our space, it's our everyday world that's normal to us, it's a mix of beauty and brokenness, but subject to frustration. And the other dimension would be God's space, where he, where he dwells in all his fullness, and for the longest time, the place of intersection of these two dimensions, heaven, the kingdom of heaven and earth, was the temple, where you go to where God was present. But then, God made himself present on earth, as the God-man king announcing the kingdom of God is here. And now you can see how the kingdom of God starts to break into our dimension. And so this is the kingdom of God. And the parables are stories about how God's space, the kingdom of God, should reshape how we interact with our space. And this will become more clear as we go. But let's get into it. So Jesus is at this dinner party. And it's a very authentically Middle Eastern setting. And you have Jesus, he's this, you know, traveling teacher. He's 
attracted quite a crowd. And the religious leaders in this particular town, they're interested in Jesus' views and what he has to say, so they invite him over for dinner. And over the, the meal, Jesus tells three short parables. And what I want to show is that actually the third, the longer parable, actually ties together those first two. That God invites us all into a banquet in the kingdom of God, and yet some excuse themselves. And so the first half of my sermon will be how we excuse ourselves from the kingdom of God, and the second half, how God invites us all in. So Luke 14, 15, the third of the three. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, and that's the first two parables Jesus is told, he, and so this is the religious uh, leader, said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now this seems to us like a pretty like random like throwaway comment, right? Like, but remember, Jesus is this traveling preacher and so this is an intentional comment, and they're sounding him out. They're saying essentially, like, Jesus, what are your views on the kingdom of God? Who, who's all going to be eating bread there? And so how should Jesus reply? He already knew what their expectations were for the, the messianic banquet. The man is essentially saying, like, bless me, bless me. He thinks he will be the one eating bread in the kingdom of God. The answer he expects from Jesus is something like, Blessed are the Jews who are able to keep the law in such a precise fashion that they will be counted worthy to sit with the master at his feast. And of course, the dinner guests would hear this and they'd nod with approval and say, yes, yes, that's very good. And move on to the next topic, right? What's his next view? But this is not what happens. And what Jesus says is remarkable enough that it's remembered and recorded. And Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything now is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another, I bought five yoke of oxen. I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife. And therefore, I can't come. So a man once gave a great banquet. Now, in this time and place, when someone was throwing a banquet, there was some planning, some preparation that went into it. The host would, you know, send out invitation to his groups of friends, and then based on who replied to the invitation, he would know how much food he had to prepare. And then when the day came, you know, they would slaughter the animal, they would prepare it, and when everything was ready, the master would tell his servant, you know, go out and please come, sell them, please come, for everything now is ready. And maybe a sort of weak equivalent we're different here in the West, would be if we were to have a dinner party, like a formal supper, maybe Dwight and Jess, they, in, they invite us over for a supper, a group of us, Andrew and Jeff and myself or whoever, and we all arrive and we're waiting in the living room, right? That's kind of the interim period. And then the host comes in, they say the food is ready. And then suddenly, imagine this, Jeff jumps up, he's like, oh, I gotta go mow the lawn, I'm sorry. And he heads out the door. And then Andrew, I'm sorry, I bought a house. I haven't seen it yet. I got to go, bye. And then I jump up and I, I don't know. <laughs> and I head out, right? And Dwight would be like, like, what? Like, what in the world? What is going on? How rude. Like, how, how angering. Like, all of them at the same time. This seems like a sort of intentional snub. It's so, it's disrespectful. Everybody had confirmed. And then they just, they just excused themselves at the last minute. You see, on the surface, these, these excuses, they seem legit, right? 
But then you start to dig into them, and they're, they're ridiculous. I bought a field. I must now go see it. Like, who buys a field without first going to look at it? I mean, you need to look at the yield, the soil. Is it facing the sun? Like, what? It's like calling your wife. Like, I bought a house. I can't make it for supper. I have to go see it. Like, who? What? No one buys a house. No. Or the, I bought five yoke of oxen. I must now go examine them. Who, who buys oxen without inspecting them? Like, what if they're, like, half dead? What if they don't plow well together? It could be a completely worthless purchase. Or the last excuse, I've married a wife, therefore can't make it. No excuse, just can't make it. There's like implicit sexual thing going on here. It's, it's just this and I'm, I'm piecing out, right? So these, <laughs> these excuses, they demonstrate the disregard that these, these friends of the master have for the master, right? Uh, they're an intentional rejection of his generosity. And I think the reality is that we all make excuses to God too, don't we? Right? Um, this is probably one of our favorite. We're like, I'm too busy. I don't have time. And this is something we looked at a couple weeks ago. And I gave the example of like how I use social media and, you know, you know think about how the time like I spend on Facebook this morning. And uh, it's not that, you know, it was intrinsically wrong and it's the only way I can connect with you. But I'm asking myself the question, is this really how God has called me? to use this time? Is this furthering my calling? Or actually, am I excusing myself from it through this? And so we looked at how we're to redeem the time, to make the most of the particular opportune time that God has called us. Why? Because we're bought with a price, so therefore we glorify God with how we watch our YouTube or our social media, right? But like the master's friends, right, we all make these excuses for this or that because we view the next thing to be better. It's a, a misorientation, you could say, of our, of our hearts, that there's something more important and more worthwhile to us. We're saying, essentially, you and your time are less important than me and what's in front of me. And so let's look at the first of the parables Jesus told. Let's see how it connects down to that, that third one. So we're going to go up to verse 7. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they would choose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you will be invited by him. And when he who had invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to go to the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend. Move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What's the main idea here? It's that you can't assign yourself honor. It must be given to you. You can't assign yourself honor. It must be given to you. Last weekend I was away because I was a groomsman in a friend's wedding. And I had a seat assigned to me at the head table. And I don't know why they do this at weddings, but the, like, the table's elevated, everybody's like facing, you're kind of like looking down, it's kind of awkward. But <laughs> um, there was an honor associated like, with sitting at that, that head table. But what would happen if I'm just a regular attendee at that wedding and I, I just decide to seat myself <laughs> at the head table, right? The bride and groom would be like, like what are you doing? <laughs> right? My, my buddy, the groom, he'd be like, it's... It, honestly, right, it's to him belongs the greatest honor. And so he is the only one who can assign honor, right? And he'll assign it where it is due. 
And so you see, you can't give yourself honor because when we try giving ourselves honor, we actually end up shaming ourselves instead. And so how does this connect back then to the religious teacher's statement, you know, blessed are all those who eat bread in the kingdom of God? Well, the religious leader is doing what religion does. He's trying to assign himself, you could say, a seat at the head table. Religion tries to assign itself a seat at the table. He's saying, bless me, bless me, eating bread in the kingdom of God. And then what does Jesus say to this? No, my kingdom is completely upside down to this, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And when you try and assign yourself honor, you actually end up excusing yourself from the honor that God is offering you. Think about the friends of the master. They had built their own kingdoms in work and in property and in woman. But by choosing the honor in these kingdoms, they'd actually opted out of the kingdom of God. And the reality is we've all done this. We've all tried to give ourselves honor. We've all tried to see ourselves higher. And when we do this, like the friends of the master, I want to say that we end up in shame instead. And Jesus sees this. He sees our sin and our shame. And Jesus looks at our sin and our shame. He says, bring me your sin. Bring me your shame. That's all you have. And when you do that, he says, friend, come sit up higher. And so Christianity is saying that Jesus takes the seat of our shame and gives us the seat of his honor. That Jesus, who it says was the one that was despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He took the seat of our shame, the seat that we rightly deserve, so he could give us the seat of his honor. It says, seated with him in heavenly places. And so this is the great exchange of the cross. Now we are in a position of honor if we give it to him, our shame to him. But not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done. And so because of what Jesus has done, because he bore the shame of that cross, he deserves the greatest honor of heaven. And so while religion says, I can give myself honor, Christianity says, I've got nothing, to which Jesus says, friend, come sit up higher. And this brings us to our second point, that God invites all, while we excuse ourselves from it. So let's go back into the parable So the master's friends have made these ridiculous excuses, right? They got out of attending that banquet. And so we read, the servant, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the limb. I think it's easy. I think it's easy to miss what's going on here. Think of these excuses. Remind, like, they're so ridiculous. They're so angering, so disrespectful, so hateful to the master, the, the master, right? And anger, like, he, he's rightly angered. And when someone is rightly angered, there's this energy that's associated with it, right? How are we going to expend it? Are we going to retaliate? No, right? The master chooses to reprocess his anger into amazing, unmerited grace. That rather than shutting down the party, the feast goes on but he extends the invitation outwards. Bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, bring in the lame, bring in the blind. And so the servant has been sent out to extend the invitation of the master beyond to the marginalized of society. And this should recall us back to the second parable then that Jesus told. 
He said also to, a man who, to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in your turn and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. You will be blessed because you cannot be repaid. So who is blessed then, really? Think of that question. Who is blessed in the kingdom of God? Jesus is not necessarily those who keep the law. That's, that's missing the point. It's those who demonstrate God's radical, generous grace. Jesus is saying, invite people for who they are, not what they have, not what you can get from them. You are inviting people because, to dine with you for what you can get. You're inviting them because of their, their, you know, their social creds. Maybe they'll check in at your party on Facebook or Instagram. <laughs> or you're inviting people for their wallet. Maybe they'll bring you the biggest wedding present. Or you're inviting people for their position. Maybe they'll be able to score you that next job promotion. And we've all done this, haven't we? And to all of this, Jesus says, and bite people for who they are, not what they have. Stop using people as a means to an end. What you're doing, what are you doing when you do that? You're making people like objects. You're starting to, to use them to build up your honor, to build up your creds, right? And I could tell you to stop. I could, but the reality is you can't simply stop. You can't stop objectifying people. You can't stop using people as a means to an end until something happens. And what's that? until you receive God's grace. But why is that? Because those who have received grace are able to extend it. Those who have received grace are able to extend it. Listen, what Jesus is saying here is that when you had nothing to bring to the table, when you were spiritually poor, lame, and blind, I still invited you. And if you don't excuse yourself from that invitation, if you receive the grace of God, you will no longer need to earn your own honor. That the one who matters most has given you all the honor you need. He has made you to sit in heavenly places. So there's no higher honor than that. And so this frees us from the work of trying to earn our own honor, from extracting it from other people. And it allows us to appreciate people for who they are, not what they can do for us. And so recapture the wonder of this exchange. That you no longer need to use people as a means to an end. You can stop because you have received everything in Christ Jesus. And now Jesus says, if you've experienced my radical, inclusive grace, you are able to extend it to others. This is why those who have received grace are able to extend grace. And so we bring in those who cannot repay us. We bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And this isn't just limited, as we'll see, to the marginalized, but the principle is to invite all without any expectation in return. And so the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel, compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, and that's the you is plural there, none of those men who are invited will taste of my banquet. Whose banquet is it? The you the you here is plural. It's no longer the master speaking to the servant. Jesus is now turning from the parable to address the religious leaders. Jesus is saying, it's my banquet. This is the, the mic drop moment, 
right? He's saying to the religious leaders that he is the Messiah King hosting the banquet. It's his banquet in the kingdom of God. And so to bring this all together, what does this mean for us today? The first is that it's a feast. Remember, the kingdom of God is a feast, and that is a good thing. There's extravagant food. Think of what feasts are. Joy, laughter, community. But Jesus is clear. If you reject the invite, if you try and build your own kingdom, you will not taste the goodness of my eternal kingdom. This is a self-inflicted consequence, but it's an urgent, it's a momentous decision, and there is no fence to sit on. You know, sometimes I get down, and I think, man, like, this city, (laughs) this city is so far from the kingdom of God. People are just, they're not interested in Jesus, and they probably never will be. When I say this, what am I really believing that the kingdom of God is? Am I believing, am I believing it's really a feast, right? Because if I really believe that the kingdom of God was a feast like this, who wouldn't want to hear that? I think when we recapture the wonder of what Christianity is about, when we see that we had nothing to bring to the table, that we deserve the lowest seat, and that Jesus invited us in in exchange our shame for his honor, and it's a feast, who wouldn't want to hear that? That's amazing. That's compelling. That changes everything. And the servant gets this. First, he's sent to the marginalized, right? And then when he sees there's no room, he starts to to buy in. He starts to catch on to that vision. And the master then sends him beyond, beyond the marginalized, to the highways, into the hedges. That's where the thieves, the vagabonds were, the total outcasts of society. And so it's first the marginalized and then to the outcasts. And as disciples of Jesus, we too bear this message to the far-flung reaches of our society, and there's an urgency to it. Go quickly, says the master. Make the most of the particular opportune time that God has given you, because the kingdom of God is here. The feast is ready, but not yet. The house is not yet full. And so in the kingdom of God, you could say, it's as if the food is hot and the table is set, but not all the guests have yet arrived. And there's also extraordinary, I want to say, social implications about what Jesus is saying here. So my second application would be that feast cost. What Jesus is saying doesn't just have spiritual application. It really, it goes beyond holistically to say that the Christian who knows and understands the gospel cares about the needs of those who are marginalized and outcast. Because those who have received grace extend grace. We get involved. We go into those messy situations, even when they're costly. Thinking about this has really challenged me uh, this past week. Because the honest truth is there has been times in my life where I've excused myself from the situations that God has put in front of me. And why? Because inviting people to feast the way Jesus has asked us to feast is costly. And most of the reasons you give in your head for not doing it are probably real. You're thinking things like, you know, food costs. There's an inconvenience to it. Things might get broken. The conversations, they might be awkward. And I want to say, this is all true. This is all true. But it's nothing compared to the real costs. See, the real costs 
is when you listen to someone's story and you start to love them and you start to enter into their lives and then and you see that person then you see that person you love start to make foolish decisions or be ensnared by addictions or be the victim of unfortunate circumstance and see it's easy to distance ourselves from these situations but it's it's messy <laughs> It's messy and costly to love them regardless of the outcome. It's easy to distance ourselves, but it's messy and costly to, re to love regardless of the outcome. And I think there's a pastor in California who knows this better than I do. And I was reading his blog this past week, and this story fit right in. And so I'll read this. The real cost is not the guy who calls you up at s every single morning at 6 a.m. And he says, I'm a late-at-night guy and a late-in-the-morning guy as well. So every single morning, Andre calls me up, pastor, and I'm like, what, Andre? He's like, I need something encouraging about Jesus to get me out of bed. He has to get up a little early because he's living on the streets. He's got to get out of where he's at. So every morning when the sun rises, I have to give him something encouraging about Jesus to get him out of bed. The real cost isn't those 6 a.m. phone calls. The real cost is the morning you don't get the call because he decided to walk in front of a truck, and he's dead, and he was my good, good friend. This is the real cost of feasting like Jesus has called us. That we love people regardless of the outcome. It's messy and it's costly. But we love them for who they are and not what they have to bring to the table. And I'll end with this point, that grace has invited you. Grace has invited you. We saw how in this parable, the master God, right? He has reprocessed his anger into grace. He extended it first to the marginalized and then to the outcast. And this is the, this is the radical welcome of God. And thinking about this, meditating on this, reminded me of a story um, that my dad told me. Um, my dad moved to Montreal in the mid-1970s. And one of the people he got to know um, a bit at church was an 11-year-old guy named Philip. And Philip had a paper route, and he would deliver the Montreal Gazette uh, around his neighborhood in Saint-Laurent. Saint and on January 7th, 1977, he left his home at 5.30 in the morning to deliver newspapers, and he never came back. And they found him stabbed 12 times in the neck with a screwdriver. And there was no apparent reason for his killing. There was crime, yes, there was crime amongst the youth of that neighborhood, but he still had the $2 in his pocket that he had left home with. And so to this day, this remains one of the most chilling and mysterious killings that's happened in this city. It's never been solved. But following this incident, Philip's dad was determined and he said, the world expects me to get angry, but I'm going to reach out and show the love of Christ to the youth of this neighborhood. One of them is likely my son's killer. And so a few weeks later, he started inviting his, the kids of the neighborhood into, the, into his house for something he called Youth Hour. And most of the youth were guys, about 80% of them, and they did floor hockey uh, and Bible teaching and music. And I think of this father, right, who has lost one of his sons at his table, and he chooses, rather, to extend the invitation outward and invite more sons in. And this is the reprocessing of anger into grace that we see in this parable. And it has a ripple effect, right? And so years later, now I was asking my dad about this story yesterday. And he can, he can list people around this city whose lives were transformed by this work. 
Even Philip's own brothers went on to bless. One of them is now director of the Montreal Welcome Hall Mission. Another one started and runs a school for the, the marginalized and disadvantaged students of Montreal. And so this story, this story reminds me of the parable of the great banquet. This reminds me of the radical welcome of God. This reminds me that for those who have received grace, they are then able to extend grace. And then when we do this, this comes back to where we all started. We start to see the inbreaking, the eminent presence of God, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And isn't this ever, ever so relevant to our lives? And so remember it's a feast. Remember that God has invited all. And remember that grace has invited you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to move into a time of response. Father, I thank you that the kingdom of God is like a feast. And that you extend the invitation far and wide to rich and poor, to weak and strong, to tax collectors and sinners. You invite us all in. And I pray, God, that we wouldn't excuse you that we would receive you, and that you would fill us with your grace so that we'd be able to extend it. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, I ask this.